From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. Oh yeah, here we are rocking it on the Automotive ADHD Show. My name is Matt West here to talk about cars. Yes, I am the resident gearhead and allegedly the host of this radio show and podcast. Of course, this show is heard uh, on the radio in Southern Colorado and around the world as a podcast. Now, I have a fantastic show uh, in the works for you. Very fun show. Got a big, big um, pile of things to talk about. But before I do that, last week's show, if you missed it, you must check it out. You absolutely have to. It was a incredible show featuring one of the coolest guests that I have had the privilege of talking to. Uh, I feature, The show featured my interview with Alistair Moffat, and uh, he is a precision driver, a stunt driver, and he talked about what it takes to hold 13 current Guinness World Records for precision driving. I guarantee in one way or another, you have seen his driving, whether it's been on film, TV, viral videos. He is an amazing guest. And if if you missed last week's show, you're really missing out. So after this show, um, just go go to the next one and uh, and listen to that. And of course, if you did listen to last week's show, well, then you know already, and uh, then you're and you're all caught up. So very cool stuff. You got to listen to that interview. Listen to it. Share it with your friends. And uh, I again, I was I'm just stoked that I was. Um, there was a lot of planning that went into coordinating that interview and being in different countries and figuring out the timing and getting such a uh, high profile guest like Alistair. Again, very cool, and I have to thank Alistair for being kind enough to join me on the show. Now, this show again. How do I how do I top last week's show? I don't know. <laughs> I never know how, but somehow I'm gonna figure out a way to do it. Got some great stuff. Gonna talk about a quick update on the manual transmission Supra, the new one, the fifth generation Supra. Uh, I was I talked about it, uh, you know, in, in weeks past, and I was wrong. I was wrong in the best way possible. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get into that. Gonna get into that. Uh, also, gonna talk a little bit about shop safety. Um, if you follow me on social media, I know uh, some of you do. I don't typically uh, throw my personal social media out here on the show, but if you do happen to follow me on Instagram at uh, Sir Matt West, you know I had a very close call working in the garage earlier this week. I. Uh, <laughs> I got lucky, and uh, so uh, and if I didn't get lucky, I wouldn't be here doing the show. It was it was serious enough in that regard. So I'm uh, gonna talk a little bit about shop safety. Also, I have good news on the automotive chip shortage and uh, what some manufacturers are still doing to kind of curb the effects of it. But it's looking like um, and industry officials and experts are saying that we may finally be pulling out of this thing. So that is very cool and. The um, United States Mail Service, they're getting sued because they are buying new vehicles, and they're being sued by 16 states because of these new vehicles. Going to kind of delve into that and very lightly into, I won't say the politics, but some of the reasons that that is uh, happening. Oh, and of course, of course, I'm going to play your car sounds and announce the winner of this month's car sound giveaway. Yep, so uh, it's a packed show. Without uh, without prolonging this any further, ladies, gentlemen, 
1976 City Cars. Uh, no, no, really. By the way, Josh Maldonado, friend of the show, posted a 1976 City Car on the Facebook page. It's the weirdest thing you'll ever see. Check that out. Anyway, I want to talk about uh, not City Cars. Um, the uh, the Mark V Supra. The you know a you know what a ninety Supra and uh, and I want to talk about that because uh, you know I talked about. Last week, how the great news was that uh, Toyota is listening to its customers, that they are uh, including a manual transmission after a couple of years of that car being on the market and being in a, a fantastic vehicle. And the only criticisms of it was that it was a BMW. Fine. But also that it didn't have a manual transmission, even though they developed it with a manual transmission. And at the last minute, just decided not to sell it with said manual transmission. So I talked about that, and and you can hear my thoughts on that and how I, I go into a little more of what I think Toyota is doing as a brand, and again, why they are one of my favorite car companies, not just because of their cars, but because they listen to their consumers, and um, they, they tend to follow the trends that their consumers want rather than the trends that big company heads say they should. Um, but... I was. Uh, I made the prediction. I said it would be a tragedy, but I fully expect that the manual transmission is only ends up getting offered on the four-cylinder uh, engine rather than the six-cylinder engine. And, um, and and to that effect, I I have to say, you know, and I and I I said I expect that. I would like differently. But I expect that because that seems to be the trend. You look at, well, for instance, the new Bronco, uh, Ford Bronco. They're like, yeah, we're offering it with a manual. Ooh, yeah, we're we're uh, doing that to uh, appeal to car enthusiasts. And then they only offer it on the four cylinder. It's like you can't you can't get it with the bigger engine. Obviously, probably because they didn't want to do. They already maybe had that transmission for something else, and they didn't want to do the development and the cost for a transmission that can handle the torque and power of the bigger. Uh, more powerful six-cylinder. Well, I made that prediction, and I was wrong. I was wrong, and I am so happy to say it, because they announced uh, earlier this week that the manual transmission would, in fact, be coming on the six-cylinder and not the four-cylinder. It was a complete 180 from uh, what, uh, you know, what I was talking about. And uh, so, that... That's very cool, and it's on the six-cylinder. It's going to be good, and, and, and for once, they actually did the cool thing, which was, well, well not, you know, not doing the logical thing, which was, oh, let's only offer it on the on the, uh, the, the four-cylinder. No, no, we're going to offer it on the six-cylinder and not the four-cylinder, so I'm, I'm very excited uh, with that. And, uh, and and that being uh, the, the fact, one thing that they are saying is... Um, they're also offering a uh, special edition A91MT. They're calling it the A91MT, which is going to include some extra colors. Obviously, MT is for the manual transmission, uh, you know, uh, or you could say, you know, it's pretty common in Japanese parlance. And you look at cars from Japan, they'll usually say like 6MT, 4MT. You know, 6AT, that's that's a pretty common abbreviation that the uh, Japanese manufacturers like to use. Not exclusively Japanese, you just find that more often. But, uh, yeah, by the way, this manual transmission, it will have six gears. Um, they have not uh, released um, any of the actual gear ratios. We know nothing about that. But, you know what, I don't even care. 
I don't even care that we don't know the details of the transmission. I am just happy that there is uh, a picture of said Supra with three pedals in the pedal box area on the driver's side. That is as it should be. Good on you, Toyota. Good on you. That is very very uh, pro-car enthusiast, I would say. So, anyway, um, that's uh, just a quick update on that. Again, not not the full story there. I talked about it in more detail uh, on last week's show, but, um, but just a little bit of an update. And uh, I'm very happy, very happy that I was wrong, and they haven't announced any of the pricing for the manual transmission model. Uh, I assume, like manual transmission models tend to be, it will be cheaper, but you never know. You never know when the automatic is, is the standard and you have to option in the manual. I don't know. That that could result in that being more expensive. And you know what? I don't care. I don't care. It's a manual. It's fine. It's. <laughs> I'm just, you know what? I am good with that. That is... Um, that's that's what you call a win. We are slowly but surely winning as car enthusiasts, winning over brands like Toyota, and they're making us cool cars that we can buy. So I like that. So anyway, uh, now next thing I'm going to talk about is uh, some shop safety. I, I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but uh, I had a very close call. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about some things you can do to be safer while you are wrenching. That's coming up right here after the break. Did you know there's a rare but serious condition affecting one out of every million? Most are born with it, and despite decades of research, doctors struggle to find a cure. The truth is, thousands of people simply don't know what cars are. For those affected, things are grim, but recent developments show promising success. New clinical trials using breakthrough audio technology have shown a 69% improvement in patients with the most severe symptoms. Treatments vary, but one day we may see a cure. More information is available at ThrottleWarrior.com. There we go. That is friend of the show, Nikos, in his Acura TSX. And uh, that is uh, the first time I played his car sound. I, I biffed that. I called it a TLX. Oh, no. What can I say? He was the winner of last month's car sound giveaway. And uh, his package is, uh, he's in all the way in Sweden. And his package, it's its still on the way. I'm, I'm really excited for him to uh, get that package. Of course, takes a little longer when you start shipping things uh internationally so uh nikos i'm really excited once that gets to your door i i am waiting for that and uh, i think you'll be excited with the package as well now of course if you send your car sounds into matt at throttlewarrior.com or post them on the facebook page facebook.com slash automotive adhd you will be entered for a chance to win the automotive adhd keychain i got one of them sitting right here uh as well as a 25 dollars gift certificate to your favorite auto parts store. All good stuff right there. And um, in the third half of this show, I'm going to be talking about the winner of this month's car sound giveaway. Yes, I have a new winner, and I'm going to be announcing them here on the show uh, in uh, in just a little bit. So uh, there you go. Nikos, of course, thank you for sending uh, that car sound into the show. Now, uh, what I want to talk about is shop safety. Oh, yeah. I was, um, I was mentioning this at the beginning of the show. Again, if you follow me on some of my personal social media, you know, I had a close call with uh, my S2000. And for context, I was, I was working on the S2000 
last night getting it ready for a uh, track day that unfortunately I wasn't able to make this morning uh, because of, well, said problem. I found some other parts that I needed to uh, fix before I could go. So, oh well. (laughs) But having said that, uh, I was working on the S2K and part of my task I was trying to do was replace the CV joints in the rear. I've had some vibration issues and I think I've narrowed it down to those being pretty worn out. And uh, anyway, I, I had jacked up the rear of the car Put it on jack stands like we all should do, but jack stands sometimes are not enough. And uh, I had a particularly crusty bolt I was trying to get off, and uh, I was using my whole body weight. I was under the car, and I decided to, you know, push it with my feet against uh, the ratchet I was using. I should have just grabbed a breaker bar, but I was like, ah, the breaker bar is in the toolbox. I have to slide out of here and get up and go get it. And uh, so I pushed with my feet and used my whole body to push it. And apparently I pushed it with enough force that I pushed it off of the jack stands. And um, and the, the jack stands were stable. So bear in mind, they were stable initially, but I had just, you know, I always kind of check the car once I put it on stands. I shake it around a little bit before I get underneath it and make sure it's not going anywhere. Uh, and the uh, whole car, though, slid off of said jack stands and came down right on top of me, but it did not crush me because I did one thing that I have always done, and I have sometimes been joked at for doing it, but it's totally a safe thing to do, uh, which is um, uh, taking, when you have your wheels off, you're doing something underneath your car, you take your wheels, instead of just setting them to the side, uh, you know, if you're doing brakes or whatever, that you have to take the wheels off, well, you put them underneath the frame rails of your car if you have it jacked up in the air on the jack stands in case... Should the jack stands fail, should they, uh, there were issues, you know, last year and the year before with recalled Harbor Freight brand jack stands failing, uh, or should you do what I did and been a knucklehead and pushed a car in a way I maybe shouldn't have, and maybe I should have chalked the wheels better than how I did? I, I don't know, but uh, point is, the car came off the jack stands, it fell a solid six inches, uh, I had it really high up in the air. I had like the jack stands maxed out in their height, which maybe that was also my problem. I don't know. There's a lot of ways you can say I was at fault here because I probably was. But um, and uh, then the whole car came down and uh, startled the hell out of me. And I heard it like slide. Like, it slid for a second. I rolled to dive out of the way. But even with the adrenaline, you move fast with adrenaline. Not fast enough. And if the wheels weren't laying down flat, so they were on the ground underneath the car. Um, they caught the car, uh, right, right along the frame rails. And, um, and so the car came down and didn't even hit me, but it came down really fast. And if those weren't there, that they were the last thing stopping the car from, you know, squishing me. So (laughs) I guess moral of the story, I, I would have been a little bit flatter than I am now if that had happened. And, uh, honestly getting crushed underneath the car, I guarantee you've heard of guys it happening to folks, um, is not a pleasant thing to happen to you and it's not a pleasant thing i mean it's pretty unpleasant because usually it kills you so that sucks you know don't die that's uh that's like the number one rule of life right don't die (laughs) so yeah uh or being crushed underneath that you know even if you survive man that's we'll not get into the details okay so uh but having said that you know it got me thinking about like oh gosh you know i i've been I've been working on cars for years and years. Uh, I've been working on cars ever since I was, you know, like in high school and I got my first car. You know, a lot of a lot of guys are the same way. So I've been doing it a long time. I've been doing it pretty safely. I almost always, I say almost always use jack stands. I know sometimes you're on the side of the road and you're like, well, if I don't have jack stands, I guess I don't need them. But 
That's dangerous. Don't do that. But, um, you know, 99.9% of the time I use jack stands. And most often I also put the wheels because I'm doing something under the car that requires I also take the wheels off while it's on the jack stands. I'll put them underneath the car. And I can't remember who recommended that to me. Someone at one point said, you really ought to do that. Just, you know, like your jack stands may never fail. But if they do, you, you'll be glad those wheels are there. And, uh, and, and yesterday, I was glad those wheels were there. Now, when the car came down, uh, it came down with enough force to uh, damage the wheels and uh, not only scratch the powder coat, but actually bend in the aluminum lip on my wheels. So I, I got to figure that out. Uh, those were not cheap wheels, but you know what? I, I, I'm i still doing this show, so uh, <laughs> the wheels, ultimately, they did their job. Now, I suppose you could also use some of those um, uh, car ramps, those uh, ramps that you drive up. Uh, I will occasionally, I have a set of those. I will occasionally use those and put them under, like if I'm not taking the wheels off, I'll um, leave the wheels on and I'm doing something under the car with it on the stands. I'll put those underneath the wheels so there's still something to to catch you there, uh, to catch the car if it, if it falls. And I guess the lessons I learned from this is, A, be a little bit more humble about what you're doing with car stuff because we all think we're the coolest, you know, baddest, awesomest mechanics and that we can get stuff done fast. And uh, and admittedly, it was getting late. I knew the track day was coming up in the morning and I was trying to get the CV buckets out and, uh, you know, I was rushing. I was rushing through this job. I was like going, I was working fast. I'm like, I need to get this done so I can get to bed get to my track day in the morning. And um, so admittedly, you know, right. Like I always make sure I'm using stands. I'm always making sure things are safe. But like when you're rushing, there's a lot of things you might do that aren't as conducive to safety. And the biggest thing I have seen, and this is a method that's used by like, say, military guys and, you know, uh, accident response type people who look at a diagram of what causes, you know, accidents and things that happen. And usually it's never one thing, never one thing. They use a method, by the way, that they call the um, uh, the Swiss cheese method or any deriv derivative of that, like the cheese method. So imagine that you have slices of Swiss cheese and you have multiple ones all stacked up against each other. And Swiss cheese, you know, has the little holes in it. Well, none of those holes line up immediately, but under the right circumstances, you would find a path that would allow each of those holes to line up, you know, from one thing to the next thing. If you imagine each slice of cheese, I, I'm talking about cars and I'm talking about cheese, so bear with me here. But each <laughs> each slice of cheese is like an action you're taking during your day or doing whatever. You know, airline pilots use this method, for instance, when looking at, you know, how to avoid accidents. And, uh, you know, each slice of cheese represents something you're doing. And while it might be harmless... You know, the holes in the cheese are maybe little shortcuts you're taking or you're going a little fast or you're rushing. Well, enough actions and things will happen and eventually you'll get a couple slices of cheese where the holes will line up. And that's when an accident happens. So um, I, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but uh, cheese and cars. I do like Swiss cheese. Like it's good. Good on sandwiches, by the way. But um, that's one of those things. So I guess what I learned was, uh, you know, okay, I've been putting wheels under cars like that almost all the time. Sometimes I forget to when I'm rushing. And it's like, you know what? When it comes to rushing on car stuff, you know, you you see like TV shows where people working in shops are like, we have to get the car done to go to the show like tomorrow morning. We got to rush. But at the end of the day, don't rush, I guess, to a point where it hinders your own safety. And also, having worked on cars a lot, I'm not a professional mechanic by any means, uh, and, and that's that could also be part of uh, the cause there. I'm not a professional. I'm a hobbyist. I, I like to think I'm halfway decent, at least, like, at least halfway decent as a hobbyist. And, um, 
And yeah, it's working fast and trying to do stuff. And like, oh, this bolt's not coming undone. Instead of getting the right tool and getting up and going and grabbing it, oh, I'm already under here, I'm rushing. I'm just going to get the ratchet and I'm just going to use my whole body weight to just push it and break it loose. That's also not great for your ratchets, but who cares at that point? And um, and yeah, so my, I guess long story short is... It's not so much that, oh, you know, PSA, learn to put wheels under low cars when you're working on them on jack stands or some sort of block of wood, a cinder block, uh, uh, some of those ramps or something uh, to catch the car uh, because jack stands aren't perfect and also jacks are not perfect. You should always be using said jack stands, but I guess they're not. There are times when you can be a knucklehead and uh, make them not be foolproof. And uh, so. I guess what I'm getting at is not so much a PSA of, you know, jack stands and using wheels and stuff to, you know, support the car if the jack stands fail. That's not, yeah, that's important. But I guess more of the important PSA of shop safety is that mentality of, you know, just take a second and look at what you're doing, you know, and try not to rush as much. Maybe you still got to get it done in a reasonable amount of time and that's fine, but Take like five seconds, just a breather and just look, be like, okay, I'm safe. I got these here. I got this here. Uh, here's a better way for me to go about doing this task that's maybe less risky instead of just rushing through it the whole way. So uh, more of a mentality thing and a little bit humbling for yours truly. <laughs> so I learned my lesson there. Uh, so hopefully you don't have to. Now, uh, without getting too heavy on that topic, another thing I want to get into here, uh, just halfway through the show at this point now, is... Um, it's got nothing to do with shop safety and things like that, but has everything to do with the automotive chip shortage. Yeah, so uh, what we've got, you've obviously uh, been aware of the chip shortage. Um, you know, it's it's hard to not be aware of that uh, these past couple of years, and obviously it came from, um, you know, COVID and, uh, you know, supply restrictions, things like that. It, it, there's a lot of reasons behind it. I've done, a, I've done an entire show on some of the more detailed reasons for it. But uh, recently in a um, press release, the CEO of General Motors, uh, Mary Barra, says the um, chip shortage may actually be coming to a little bit of an end. Uh, Mary Barra said that the um, uh, that they're starting to have more chips come in because of the supply chain. Things are, maybe it's not that they're making more of them, but that the you know, supply chain is starting to cope with it and they're, they're getting used to it. Uh, and I will say as well, and this was reported on autoevolution.com, that the uh, sales of smartphones and PCs and things like that are slowing down now. The big rush during COVID was to have uh, everyone buying, you know, phones, cameras, things to, you know, work remotely. Uh, and uh, that's kind of slowing down. You know, people have the tech that they have and the huge influx of demand for it has tapered off to a steady lower demand for it, uh, which is allowing more of the manufacturers that make semiconductors and chips. Obviously, auto manufacturers a lot of times aren't making their own chips that are going into engine control modules and, you know, heated power window module or heated power window, heated power mirrors. <laughs> That's what I was going for. But, um, you know, a lot, some of them are doing that. You know, uh, Tesla is famously started talking about going in-house with their manufacturing, um, which is fine. Uh, but a lot of times this stuff is made by other manufacturers and General Motors and Ford is, you know, all they're doing is buying these parts from these manufacturers, assembling them. And that's how the automotive supply chain more often than not works. And 
It's interesting, though, because, uh, you know, the, the automotive industry has had to cope with this in interesting ways. Uh, I, I've, you know, cited one example of that being Volkswagen having to shift from their uh, just-in-time method of manufacturing, where they were receiving parts and things just in time to be stuck onto cars. Um, and uh, they were famous for that, for pioneering kind of that method. Well, they had to go back to, I guess you could say, the old method of stockpiling parts and having them ready to go because you don't know what your supply chain is going to be doing the next day. Um, and But you know what? That's worked. That that has kept them in production. Tesla famously has said that they're going to go in-house with some of their production of semiconductors and chips and stuff. The thing with going in-house is that it's expensive, though, because not only do you have to buy companies and tool up production and, and manufacturing facilities to make you know cars, which is what you have to do as an auto manufacturer, but now you got to buy whole other manufacturing facilities or make them from the ground up made to not make cars but design these facilities to make you know microchips and that's a whole different field of manufacturing when you specialize in building cars now you're having to hire on all sorts of people consultants and and, and you know people who can actually formulate a plan to build a semiconductor Factory. I mean, this whole thing is complicated. You don't just say, "Yeah, we're start. We're gonna start making semiconductors." There's a, there's a whole freaking world of industry. That's its own industry. And when you branch off from cars into that, you have to, you know, do all the tricks of that industry. It's like starting a whole nother business, and then you have to be good at it. And the people who are good at it are the companies that have already been doing it for years, and they've gone through all the teething problems of figuring out how to do it. So that's one issue with going in house. Once you're established as making something in-house obviously that's a um obviously that that that's you're winning at that point because you're doing it in-house your own parts you're not having to work with other suppliers you're able to design stuff and go from design to production a lot easier that's all good but as it comes to the automotive chip shortage uh manufacturers again it's it's like you know what i mentioned a few minutes ago with smartphones and pcs the demand has tapered down a bit and we've kind of figured out how to use what we have and how to work with the supply chain as it exists now. And uh, same thing applies for cars. You know, the General Motors is getting very used to working with this um, su supply chain in its current state. And now that the restrictions on, you know, flow and inventory and trade uh, are starting to ease up a bit, uh, now it's, oh, well, we, we really, you know, they're saying, you know, well, we really pared down and we, we figured out how to do this you know, as tightly and as, you know, with few parts as possible. And now we have more parts, maybe not as much as we had a couple years ago, but we have more than we did a year ago. And that's nice. Now we have to us, you know, a surplus of parts because we're so used to working with none now. Now we've got more than none, which is cool. So I, I'm just saying that, you know, say from the hypothetical perspective of General Motors. Now that said, uh, some things I think have changed and will continue to stay changed. For instance, Ram... Uh, as a company, Dodge Ram, I guess it's just Ram now. I don't know. It's always going to be Dodge Ram to me, but they want to be recognized as, you know, their own company. When you go look at a new Ram, it doesn't say Dodge on it anywhere, just Ram. Uh, but uh, that said, they have added a special package that uh, on there, and someone spotted this on their online configurator for cars uh, for the uh, Dodge Ram trucks, that they are adding a halogen quad headlight. Uh, and uh, fog light package, adding that. Well, wait, you're adding a halogen light package, which is technically a downgrade from the LEDs that you already have. Yeah, so what they're doing 
is the standard lighting, for instance, on the front of the truck, is LED. The standard, you know, one is LED, but they're saying, well, hey, Mr. Consumer uh, or Mrs. Consumer, uh, you, uh, you know, you want to save some money and you're not hell bent on having LEDs. In fact, you really don't care. You just kind of want lights that are, they work at night and they meet, you know, uh, government requirements. Okay, well, here is a uh, package that saves you 500 bucks by reverting back to a halogen headlight. Which is interesting. We haven't really seen this. Once Once something becomes the standard, once a new technology becomes the default option, you don't normally find a downgrade option. But that's what they're doing. And a lot of people in the industry have speculated that, oh, this is a cool way to save the consumer money for the thrifty consumer who wants to spend that 500 bucks elsewhere optioning their truck. Uh, or, in reality, people are speculating that, Ah, this is a clever way because a clever way to to save electronic components and LED boards and microchips and all the things that go into making those fancy LED headlights that are quite frankly are too bright on the road, but (laughs) that makes those too bright headlights work. Um, This is a good way to save money and save parts. And it's a win-win and you can imagine in a lot of ways. And also instead of forcing customers to say, sorry, we're not selling LED headlights anymore. They're saying, well, for our thriftier customers who maybe are buying this as a work truck and don't really care as much about having the premium lighting package. Well, the standard one now. It's not even the premium. But, yeah, this is what they're doing. And so I think we're going to continue to see more of this in the automotive industry. Uh, I think we're going to continue to see, uh, you know, manufacturers offering things like that as options like downgrades as options so um very interesting stuff even as chips come back i think it's changed a little bit of the culture when it comes to you know how manufacturers think about options and parts on their cars so anyway hey coming up gonna be talking about another interesting debacle which is involving the united states postal service that's next at the speed council getting things done fast is our priority we do everything fast from driving Working, sleeping, and eating. Someone help, he's choking! This is Tim. Hello. And by the time this ad is over, he'll have bicycled across the earth 69 times. Nice. Even if our name sounds unfamiliar, you know our work. F1? Pfft, child's play. The world's first supersonic jet? Yep, that was us. Apollo 11? Also us. The fastest animal in the sea? Hell, we even wrote the Wikipedia article. Fast. And we're so dedicated to speed that we've genetically engineered the world's first hyperspeed speed machine. With this scientific breakthrough, you can download your favorite automotive podcast a whole day early. How's that for fast? Patreon.com slash Throttle Warrior. Donate now. Download the show early and receive special perks. This message approved by the Speed Council and the Church of Fast Things. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait. There it is. Yeah, that's Brad Stapp and his 1964 Mercury Breezeway racing at the Pikes Peak International Raceway. Of course, my name is Matt West here to talk about cars and your car sounds. And you may notice that uh, Brad sent that car sound in last week and I played it on last week's show. And uh, here I am playing it again. And, you know, there is a very good reason for that, which is um, this keychain right here. Can you... Oh, can you see it? Well, I just says I throw it at the microphone. Well, of course you can't see it. It's audio. But it is the automotive ADHD keychain. And 
I give these away every single month, as well as a $25 gift certificate to your favorite parts store. And you might have guessed it by now, but I'll, I'll do the drum roll on the desk anyway. Here we go. There we go. Brad. As, as things fall off my desk. Uh, Brad is the winner of this month's car sound giveaway. Brad, congratulations. Uh, Brad not only sent in that sound, but earlier he also sent in a uh, clip of his uh, turbocharged Chevy Silverado doing a burnout. So that's also very, very cool. If you've got car sounds and you want to send them into the show like Brad did, well, you can do that. Matt at ThrottleWarrior.com is the email. You can also post them on the Automotive ADHD Facebook page. Or if you're feeling really generous, you can um, put them on a flash drive and tape that to a Nine Lives Racing 72-inch wing for a Honda S2000 uh, and send that to, uh, of course, me as well. Uh, I would be I would be very very grateful of doing that. That may or may not influence your chances of uh, winning. So I won't dissuade dissuade you from doing that. But anyway, uh, Brad, congratulations! I will uh, get some info from you over um, private message here in just a little bit. Get that sent your way, and uh, hopefully shouldn't take too long because I'm in you know, Brad's. By the way, in in the fine city of Denver, Colorado, and I am just down the road in Colorado Springs, so uh, hopefully won't take too long, and uh, yeah, so there we go. Winning on this show is something you can absolutely do. Now, another thing I want to get into here is um, the uh, United States Postal Service, okay? So, uh, and I understand a good number of my listeners aren't in the United States, but I think this is interesting, and I, I if anything... I would be curious to hear from some of my international listeners how your country's mail service handles its vehicles. So, in the United States, we have a uh, vehicle that has been a staple of postal service, um, you know, deliveries for for decades. We have it's called the Grumman LLV, which is the Grumman uh, Long Life Vehicle. Government likes its acronyms, of course, uh, and it's made by a company called Grumman using pretty much the same engine that was found uh, in the Chevy S10s and Blazers, uh, the four-cylinder uh, engine. And uh, I believe, I believe, I don't have it in front of me here, I believe that was called the Dauntless uh, four-cylinder. Uh, or no, sorry, Dauntless was a Jeep one. I'm mixing things up. That was the Iron Duke four-cylinder. Pardon me there. Um, and uh, the Iron Duke uh, was famous for a number of things, none of them relating to its power or reliability. Uh, in fact, it was quite famous for catching fire a lot, which was an issue with General Motors vehicles at that time, and also by extension has become an issue with United States uh, mail trucks. And it's been an issue since there was the recall back in the day, in the 80s. Uh, and even now, there are United States Postal Service trucks that are catching fire because that recall service was never done in true government fashion. Uh, so, yeah, that's not a primary reason that the Postal Service is looking to replace these trucks. Um, there are a number of them. One of said reasons is because they like to catch fire. Another reason is because they're just really, really old and it's getting uh, cost prohibitively expensive to maintain them. And of course, these are the little mail trucks you see um, driving around. They're small. They are real boxy and they have that classic sound. I swear, if you if you grew up any time from the 1980s, through the, well, I would say even now, uh, you know the sound. You're sitting there at home, and then you just hear the engine start, stop, start, stop, stop, stop. You know that's the sound of the mailman coming to deliver your mail. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's a uniquely American thing. I don't know if anyone else can relate to that, but I, ever since I was a kid, I can, 
I can picture hearing the mailman coming from like halfway down the block. Uh, and uh, so the thing is, the government wants to uh, replace these. And there has been a bid for an open bid for different companies to um, develop and propose a vehicle that can replace it. And they've been doing this since like 2016. This has been a very long endeavor. And uh, uh, last year, they finally settled on a vehicle made by the manufacturer Oshkosh, also uh, presumably located in the um, the city of Oshkosh. Uh, but anyway, it's a even boxier, bigger mail truck. Looks a lot more like a commercial vehicle you would see like UPS or Amazon using. You can actually walk inside of it. It's a lot taller. It's, uh, you know, can carry more packages because not the, the Grumman LLV is smaller. And, uh, again, obviously if you're in America, you know what I'm talking about for my international listeners. It's very small. Uh, it was developed at a time when the primary thing that the Postal Service was delivering were uh, envelopes and presumably people sticking shipping labels to, like, coconuts and stuff. Because I guess you can technically do that. There's some sort of myth that you can't, and people try. But anyway, um, that's all they were they were delivering. And so now, though, with online commerce being the, way, being the way it is, with Amazon and all this, you know, people doing a lot of even their grocery shopping via online commerce... Well, now these mail trucks obviously have to get bigger because they are not only holding letters, they're holding packages and things like that. So there are a number of reasons. The mail trucks that they have are old, they're not big enough, they're falling apart, and they like to catch fire a lot. So, uh, and uh, that's a problem. So the, again, the mail mail service put out an open bid to different companies. Oshkosh Manufacturing ultimately won the bid for a vehicle that is now causing 16 states as well as different environmental groups to sue the United States Postal Service uh, because apparently the vehicle gets a whopping, whopping 8.6 miles to the gallon, which I will argue in the defense of the Postal Service is more than the 8.2 miles to the gallon that the Grumman LLVs got. And uh, part of your issue here with gas mileage. And I, I'm going to kind of, in some ways, you know, look at this practically uh, and not take a political or environmental standpoint to it. But, um, you, you know, when you look at these mail trucks, you're like, oh, my God, eight miles to the gallon in the current ones. That's awful. Well, the fact is they're starting and stopping, starting and stopping over and over and over again. And um, they travel 10 yards, stop, idle, 10 yards, stop, idle. It's uh, it, it's not the same sort of miles per gallon you're used to even just driving through the city normally. So, um, that said, the new vehicle um, uh, apparently gets similar gas mileage, but people are saying, wow, I can't believe, you know, 40 years of development and the new one gets four-tenths of a mile more than the old one. Well, there's a reason for that, and that is the fact that it, it actually makes, it, it's, it's a substantial improvement because, okay, it's getting a teeny little bit more gas mileage, but it's also like four times the size, huge, also has air conditioning, which apparently is a first for the Postal Service, because uh, I guess the United States government hasn't heard of air conditioning until about, I don't know, a couple of years ago. Uh, none of the Grumman LLVs, like none of them, the current fleet, use uh, have air conditioning. So um, that said, so this truck is bigger, has a lot more uh, features, can do a lot more stuff, and amazingly gets i would say 8.6 miles to the gallon when you when you think of all the things that it has to do now all that extra weight that extra size the extra accessories the air conditioning um all of that being considered 
it is impressive, in my opinion, that it gets 8.6 miles to the gallon. So um, the fact is, you know, can you build a perfect vehicle uh, that does everything that the Postal Service wants and get 40, 50 miles to the gallon? Absolutely, you could totally do it. It would just cost so much that the government wouldn't want to pay for it. Uh, bear in mind, when they put out an open bid for companies to um, propose vehicles and design things to work for what they're doing, they're more often than not taking the lowest bidder or at the very least one of the lower ones considering the features and options that would these vehicles have. So um, with that in mind, I don't know if it's necessarily correct for some of these 16 states to say that the U.S. Postal Service has ignored clearly better options. Well, yeah, of course they did because they were given a budget that they had to work within. And yeah, you could have all of these vehicles, ideally, ideally, and I say this as a diehard car guy, a guy who loves burnouts, drifting, racing, everything to do with burning gas. But I will say, truly, the best solution you could propose here would be electric vehicles for mail trucks. And I, I'm not doing that to say any sort of environmental or political bias. Um, you know, you got to be careful when you talk about those, those topics, obviously. But uh, I'm not saying it for that. I'm saying from purely a practical perspective, electric vehicles make a whole lot of sense when you're driving 10 yards and stopping, driving 10 yards and stopping, and you're doing that for eight or nine hours a day, every single day for years on end, 10 yards, stop. 10 yards, stop. 10 yards, stop. Yeah, okay. Electric just, it, it just makes more sense there because you're not, you know, idling and wasting fuel by idling. And some people say, well, well, the new ones have start-stop. Well, start-stop systems, I see that being problematic, uh, and I don't believe they're going to be utilizing start-stop stop systems. But one of the arguments um, on one of the groups, including the 16 states that is suing the Postal Service, is, you know, like, well, what about better technology? And they didn't directly reference start-stop, but it does make you wonder. Okay, so the start-stop systems that many modern cars have, you come to a stoplight, the engine shuts off, and then as the second you go off the brake, the engine starts again, and you get moving. And that has been proven to save fuel. Well, one issue you have is the way engines work, which is that they only have oil pressure when they're running. When they're at low RPM, there is less oil pressure. And modern engines are designed with the notion of start-stop, which is... You know, that, okay, you're going to be starting and stopping and that oil pressure is going to be the lowest and you need to get up to RPM to get the highest oil pressure to avoid wear on the crank journals and the uh, rod bearings and things like that. So they're designed with that. But I think there's a, you know, reasonable, it's within reasonable doubt to say that well, there's probably a design limitation of doing that start-stop every 10 yards. Uh, those start-stop systems are intended for you to, you know, drive every couple miles and stop at a stoplight and then drive again for a few more minutes, not every single 10 yards. That's just not practical. I think that's going to cause a lot more issues. So, again, brings us back to electric vehicles being the... Uh, obvious solution here. Problem is electric stuff is expensive right now. This is the same reason, you know, a lot of people who maybe don't like having as much fun with their cars say, ah, you darn gearheads, just go get an electric car. Well, they're more, they're objectively a lot more expensive. We have yet to reach the threshold where electric cars are used and cheap and you can go have fun with them. And, you know, I'm sure electric track cars and stuff, there's already people doing that, but you know, electric enthusiast cars. I disagree with them fundamentally from like a sports car perspective. You know my opinion. 
Got to be, got to have a gas engine. It's got to have it. But, uh, but that said, it's the stuff is still expensive, and the postal service is obviously seeing that same thing. Well, we know that there's better technology, but it's cost prohibitive right now. Now that said, they did kind of, um, they did kind of bend to this notion a little bit, and they said 10% of their fleet are going to be electric. But uh, again, 10% of however many hundreds of thousands, millions of vehicles. It's not really that much, and those will probably be in the really dense urban areas. But having said that, should you be suing the Postal Service for this? No, just let them get a car that works because we all need mail that gets delivered. Um, the Postal Service is already, uh, you know, is already facing really stiff competition with uh, delivery services, Amazon's delivery, uh, UPS, FedEx, DHL, all these delivery services. So, uh, and they're trying their best. I will say that. But one one argument, and this this delves out of the range of a car show, so I won't really get into it much. But one argument is that, well, honestly, the free market, you know, private companies, UPS, FedEx, Amazon. DHL are already doing a better job and that's not to offend anyone working very hard and very diligently at the post office it's just with so many free market options available and the the fact that they don't have the need to go through the government and the taxpayers to get a new vehicle they can just as free market enterprises just implement a new vehicle if they see that that makes sense and makes them more money um I think anytime you have that that that's going to win but I don't know I'm interested to see uh, where the postal vehicle goes, it's been six years in the making, and every single time they say, we need more postal trucks, we need more, I, <laughs> it's like, well, okay, we'll wait another 10 or 15 years, and uh, it does go to show that the Grumman LLV is a um, very practical vehicle, and very... I mean, I'm sure the maintenance on them sucks, but the fact is, they've got mil These things are driving around with millions of miles, I mean, got to give that, those credit. And honestly, in, from my perspective, I can't wait until they get a new postal vehicle because I want all of the Grumman LLVs to go up for like government auctions. And I want to buy one and do like an LS swap or a, a 2J swap or just something absurd. I think that would be so much fun. I just because I, by the way, the Grumman LLVs are rear wheel drive. Everyone forgets that. I've watched a mailman drift his in the snow before, and uh, they are rear wheel drive, and that is very cool. And uh, and that's, uh, come on, come on. You can't tell me you don't want to go race a mail truck with like an LS. Come on. Like you, no, no, you can't, you can't tell me you wouldn't want to do that. So anyway, there you go. This has been a fun show going a little more long format, of course, here on the podcast. I got to keep things a little tighter on the radio show, but that's why I love being able to do this as a podcast for you. Go into some of these topics a little bit deeper. Now, of course, if you do want to catch the radio show, you can also do that. That's in Southern Colorado on 91.7 KLZR voice of the wet mountain Valley. Now this week has been a lot of fun. Remember to check out last week's show. My great interview with Alistair Moffat, 13-time Guinness World Record holder. If you haven't listened to that, well, you're missing out. So there you go. Now, of course, you can subscribe to this fine podcast. Well, that's maybe an overstatement, but you can subscribe to it where other shows are downloaded. Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple, uh, all of, you, you know, you know how to listen to podcasts. You're listening to this already. Uh, now, I will see you same bad time, same bad place next week when I don't break the first rule of Fight Club or the second rule, for that matter. Anyway, I'll see you then.